Hello, hello, my name is Michael and I welcome you to What's Your Career, where careers are examined one at a time. Jeremy Hadley joins me today from Washington State. He has been working with Microsoft Azure for several years now, ever since Bill Gates himself recommended this position for him. The position is in data science, and in layman's terms, he describes himself as a decision scientist, which involves producing models to make wise financial and growth decisions. Jeremy is brilliant, and his role in the tech industry keeps him sharp on the future development and growth of tech. He shares timely advice for young folks looking to break into tech and how there has been a shift in how to navigate an education to start a successful career in tech. Now, let's hear the interview. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you here. Thanks for joining me. Tell me a little bit about who you are before we get going. Uh, so I'm Jerry Hadley. I'm, I live on Whidbey Island, Washington, um, up in close to the San Juan Islands. Lived here for about um, 12 years, uh, married for 25 years, have two kids, um, 21-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter, so pretty close to empty nesters. So what, what is your, what's your job title, I guess, to kick things off? Yeah, so I, I am, well, it, it depends on whether you're speaking engineering lingo or whether you're speaking business lingo. If, if, if it's business, it's senior director of um, infrastructural planning for, for Microsoft Azure. Um, if it's on the engineering side, the typical title is um, principal program management. Um, or principal PM manager um, on or more the engineering lingo. Um, yeah, so that's that's my official title with Microsoft. Been with Microsoft for just short of four years now. So okay, yeah, doing doing similar function. All right. So among all of those titles, I still don't know what you do. So <laughs> we're gonna dig into that. But, but before we do, you said you've been working with Microsoft for four years, and, yes. and how long how long has your career been? How many years have so you been? So I've been in I've been in either well, I, I've been in my entire career, I guess you should say post college since graduated from college in nineteen ninety-nine. So we're we're at about the twenty-two year mark that I've been in kind of the professional world, if you will. So Okay. All right. And um, at your current job, before we get into the details, how would you rate kind of the job function from one to ten, one being it's absolutely terrible and 10 would be your dream job good question um probably an eight i would say an eight yeah okay and then a similar question but a little bit different how happy are you at your job from one to ten same thing most of the time, these are fairly similar, but some people love what they do, but they're surrounded by people that they don't like, or the chores that they have to do just aren't very fun. So how, how happy are you? Yeah, no, the team that I work with and my employees are incredible that work with me. So that, that would be a nine to a 10, definitely. There's, um, I, I would say the team that I'm on and the work that, uh, that I'm doing is just, the ter- just a hair more satisfying than the, the company that I'm working for, although Microsoft's great. So. awesome well that's good to hear you're the type of person i'm looking for i'm looking for people that really like what they do they're passionate about it they work with good people Uh, ultimately you know we hope the listeners listen to this because they they want to hear about good careers out there and what people really enjoy doing for work i mean that's that's my goal for running this podcast so i'm glad i'm able to talk to you because uh you know you're happy with your job 
so let's jump back to college a little bit. Did you go to college? Did you get any degrees or any advanced degrees? Yeah, so I went to college. My, my, my degree was in, it's kind of strange that I landed where I landed, but um, we could probably get into that a little bit. But um, my, my degree was in marketing with an emphasis on finance. Um, it was a bachelor's degree. Um, and the emphasis was more what I was doing at the time. So um, immediately after college, I started a company with four other individuals um, that at the time was called Fairbanks Capital. Um, it was a financial services um, company that did asset-backed asset back securitizations in BNC paper. Um, so loan servicing, if you will, for BNC paper loans or subprime loans um, for various investment agencies like Greenwich Capital, um, Lehman Brothers at the Times, Credit Suisse, and Bank of America and so forth. So we would take their subprime loans, um, residential home loans or commercial that were in the subprime space, and we would be their servicing um, shop for them. And so um, we were, long story short, or we, we, could, we could go in a lot to that, but it was a fascinating journey for six, roughly six years. Um, and at the end of it, we were acquired by Credit Suisse. Um, and then, you know, after that, I, I kind of made my way into technology after that. So uh, the, the reason why I bring that up with my education is that for, for my senior year in college, I also had, I had started that 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 role um, wow. with that company. That started, so, so. I, I know this isn't your main career, but that is very fascinating to me. And I want to ask a, a couple questions on that then. Mm -hmm. um, how did you, I guess, decide to just start a company right out of college without any experience? That seems rather intimidating or rather daunting of a task. How'd you know what you wanted to do and, and how'd you make that happen? Well, I really didn't know what I wanted to do at all. So um, at the time, um, I was just looking to get inside business of some some stretch more into the finance finance world. Um, I was kind of pulled in by um, another student that was graduating with me whose father was starting this company. And um, essentially it just began, Michael, with buying six or seven subprime or servicing six or seven subprime properties in, in Utah in various towns within Utah. That they were the distressed properties about to go into foreclosure and yeah. and um, and you know kind of sale early sale, and um, we my my friend's dad would buy up those properties and then he would service them as well. He had a little bit of um, financial services background, um, and so he decided to start his own um, own company, and I kind of went along with my friend. I put some of my own money in it that I had and kept in capital and. Um, became a junior partner, a junior owner of the company, and um, kind of went off from there. And the, the, the market itself, back in 2000, 2001, in the subprime world, um, the, mark, the housing market was going crazy. And so we grew rapidly. We went from, you know, five or six loans in, in the first, you know, couple months, and we had 300 um, four, four months later. Um, there was wow. obviously a lot of capital that was coming in that was allowing us to do that. And then in year two, we had roughly 60 to 70,000 loans that we were servicing for various, for various agencies and various um, banks. Wow. Um, so you grew so very fast. quickly. No, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it grew extremely quickly. And um, in 2004, obviously, the housing crisis hit. Um, and Lehman Brothers went down or went under um, due to how much they were leveraged in the subprime world. And 
it was chaos um, in the subprime world. Uh, well, in financial services and banking in general, it was chaos. Um, oh, yeah. We didn't know whose doors were going to close and who was going to remain open. Um, and so we wrote it out. We um, barely survived. We kind of scraped it by, went down with minimal crew and waited for things to kind of turn around. Started boarding loans again and whatnot. And pretty much, you know, by the end of that fourth year, when the market started stabilizing a little bit, the early of the fifth year. Um, so in early 2005, mid 2005, we we were almost back to where we were before um, before the market crashed. Almost not quite, but in a, in a relatively healthy spot financially and growth. Um, and so much of our portfolio that we were servicing was Credit Suisse portfolio anyway. So the the, the decision to acquire us, um, as far as Credit Suisse was concerned, was kind of an easy one. Um, it, it really made sense from a strategic perspective for them. So I, I don't want to say that like anything that we did caused that to happen. I think it was, um, and I, I think it's the case in a lot of companies out there when they get acquired. I think it's a matter of being in the right place, the right market at the right time. Um, and that was definitely the case for us. Um, so, oh, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. it was very fortunate from that. I, I, I could ask about 30 more questions about all the details yeah, of, sure. of, you know, what a subprime market even is. I mean, I know the basics of what you're talking about, but I could go sure. a long way just on that career alone. But that's sure. not why we're here ultimately. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. What was that transition like? How did you decide to leave that, you know, that partnership that you were in and, and eventually get into the tech industry? Well, so it, it was funny. Um it was mainly because of the role that I was doing and I'm still somewhat doing aspects of what I did um, back at, at, at Fairbanks Capital. But um, essentially, I, I did all of the financial analysis, the risk assessment, the pricing models on what we would pay for the servicing rights for all these loans as they came through. So I had about 10 or 12 data scientists that worked with me. So we were kind of a tech company within a financial services company, meaning my department, anybody was like, we were building sure. models, building programs and software that did all of these pricing. Well, it was kind of ironic, Symantec, which is now Norton Antivirus or Norton LifeLock is what it's called now. They had just acquired Veritas and the largest software acquisition in the history of um, the United States at the time. And they were looking at creating pricing models um, and risk assessment on converging the two companies. And so um, kind of what I was doing, there, there was an individual that left our company and went to work for Symantec, one of my employees, um, two years prior to me joining. Um, he, he told the CFO of Symantec at the time that there was somebody who, you know, he should probably look at as far as looking at this risk assessment and pricing even though I wasn't in technology, it was very similar to the type of work that they needed. And so right. that's when I, that's when my career did its cataclysmic shift, if you will, into technology. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's what caused it. That's what had me leave the partnership is twofold. The reason why I left is one, I wanted to be in technology and software and technology in time. Um, and then number two was, is I didn't really have interest in staying with the company after Credit Suisse bought them because they, they had departments, multiple departments that did what I did like and my team had done. So my the critical thing for me at that time was to put my team inside a position to where they were well established within Credit Suisse. But from a leadership perspective, they didn't really need me around anymore. There, there was multiple different VPs within um, within Credit Suisse that could take care of that at that time. So it, it, it happened to be good timing when I got the phone call to go to technology or go to Symantec that um, – you know, it was a good time for me to exit and, you know, 
they had already been acquired and it was no longer the company that I helped start. So yeah, it was, it was a natural okay. transition. Well, yeah. That makes sense. So then, you know, after those first, uh, you know, four or five years that you were with, with your startup to the point when you joined Microsoft four years yeah. ago. So that was, that's what about 15, 16 years, something like that. Yeah. Uh, right. I guess summarize kind of briefly for me what you did in those 16 years, what you learned and kind of the skills and responsibilities and duties and all of those things. I mean, just real briefly, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's been a combination of pre IPO companies. So co companies that were on the verge of going public and really solidifying their go to market strategy, their pricing, their, um, their risk um, assessment um, financially, what they should be doing with the company before they made those shifts. Um, so that's that's kind of what I've been doing inside the smaller, you know, I've worked for two smaller companies and then the two bigger companies that I've worked for in in, in Adobe and um, Microsoft, um, it's, it's more about establishing formal processes um, and getting smarter about where they make their investment decisions and where they put their capital that would be a, um, the best decision for the company. Um, all in different spaces and different decision points across the company. Sometimes it's, should we acquire another company? And, you know, myself and my data scientists make the decision on whether they should buy a company or not, whether we feel like that's a good decision. Um, when I was in consultancy, it was, you know, working for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And we would help Bill and Melinda on a monthly basis, myself and my team, we would sit down with them and give them recommendations on what to do with their yearly budget. Um, that they had within the foundation where they should spend their dollars, where we felt like that it should be the best benefit or where it would be the best benefit within the world. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was kind of fascinating. It was, it was kind of this decision and data science type roles across large and mid cap companies, if you will. I'm kind of that pre IPO company and telling them, you know, where their next bets or where their next um, influx of cap or, you know, outflux of capital, I should say, should go. Um, on where where the market was going. So, yeah. Okay, there's a lot there. What you've described to me, if I were to summarize it, is you help companies grow and spend money in, in the fewest words possible. Make make wise investments for the future. You help them, uh, you know, eventually go public and make all the right decisions, uh, both from like a marketing and advertising standpoint, but also from like, data science and software and putting all of that together to, to, I guess, make, make some large decisions ultimately is what it sounds like to me. Do I have that more or less correct? Yeah, more or less correct. I mean, if I had to summarize it in three lines and sometimes I have to do the elevator pitches, <laughs> you know, yep. I, I do, a, I do a combination of business strategy along with, we call it decision science, which is more um, data science with that comes out with business recommendations. Right. And so that's what myself and any employees that I've had have been doing for roughly 15 years, to your point, is, OK, let, let's run the data that you have within your company um, that you're collecting from your users or from your product or what's happening with your company financially or what capital that you have. And let us recommend to you whether you should go public, whether you should buy a company or to your point, And you hit it right on the head, like where should you place your bets or where should you be placing your capital? to be a best ROI, that would be the best yeah. ROI for your company in, in the next five or six years. Those things that you described, is that part of your current role with Microsoft or was it just the previous 16 years of work or are they all more or less the same idea? 
Yeah, I mean, different aspects, like like, is it, like with the mid-cap or the pre-IPO companies, right, it was more wholeheartedly saying, are you ready to go public? And once you do go public as a company, where should you invest and what you, should you be doing with your products to accelerate your growth when you actually are public? With the bigger companies, it was, okay, with these billions of dollars that you have on your books right now, Here's where you should invest. Here's what products and marketing strategies that you should invest in that we think that there's a greater ROI on. Okay. So, yeah, those would be the two big buckets. And it would depend on how what the size and the position of the company was at the time on what I would be doing. But, yes, it's still inside that data science um, um, decision science space with all of those different companies. OK. In those last four years, you've been working with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, doing the similar sort of decisions that you've been talking about, but on a very large scale. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. Um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I was just doing on a consulting basis before I started with Microsoft. And um, it was really interesting coming out of one of the meetings. Um, Melinda wasn't there. She was over doing an interview with CNBC in New York. And Bill pulled me aside after one of our meetings, Michael, and he said, you know, Jeremy, there, there's a role, there's a department within Microsoft that you really need to explore. And I've set up a lunch with you with with one of the executive vice presidents at Microsoft. You need to go eat lunch with them on Thursday of next week. And lo and behold, like I had a job offer with Microsoft doing what Bill thought would be great, you know, for the company at the time. And so um, I really didn't formally apply to go to Microsoft. It wasn't my intention. I was perfectly happy consulting with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation with Unified Consulting. I love the job. I, I loved working with them, but I was kind of referred and or recommended and it turned pretty hard to say no. So, yeah. <laughs> well, what an awesome story that you have yeah. and, uh, so. you know, to work with one of the greats out there. Okay. So, you know, what, what does an eight hour day look like for you? Or do you work eight hour days? Are you working 15 hour days? Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, I, I would say it's closer to the 15 hours, definitely. And it's because really um, I have team members throughout the world in APAC, in EMEA, as well as in, in the Americas. And, and so my average day is coming in, um, looking at what statistical models have said that have been built um, around a series of like 50 different projects that we're involved with. So let's say, for instance, um, Windows wants to break into Israel with a new update or with a new marketing strategy. Um, I'll wake up, look at my email, look at the new models, what the recommendations are, what I see as far as market trends and as far as what the data, data science and, and my data scientists came out with. I'll structure that inside an executive type view and generally take it to, you know, kind of the SVP level at Microsoft and communicate, you know, what I think that, you know, we should be doing based, you know, in any one of these 50 projects that we're involved with or, um, initiatives that we're trying to do this type of analysis on top of. So it can be anywhere from a Windows program to, you know, whether we should build a new data center for Microsoft Azure in, should we build it in Malaysia? Should we build it in Indonesia? Or should we build it in New Zealand? Because, you know, we only have so much capital that, that that's available for that fiscal year and we need to place bets or tell Microsoft where they should place their bets for the greatest ROI or investment um, upon the return or their Microsoft Azure budget. So my, my day is, you know, meeting with my teams, looking at what the new industry trends are, putting forth recommendations um, to the executives and letting them know how we recommend it. It's generally putting a bunch of data science and a bunch of recommendations 
into like three options. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I do, right. Is I, I'm not smart enough to build the data science models anymore, right? Like I'm removed from that. What I do is translate everything that those, my extremely smart employees are building and what they're recommending into executive proposals and rationalizing that into executive proposals to make it easily digestible by an executive to okay. say, okay, you're giving me three options and I'll take it from here with like, here's my three options with my recommendation on what they should do. They take it from there and they make their decisions. So that's, that's kind of my day It's sitting in front of a computer. It's looking at a lot of statistical analyses. It's talking to my team and then it's rationalizing all of that into business proposals and or strategies. So, so do you spend a decent amount of time preparing, you know, presentations or reports or executive yes. summaries? Oh. All, all of that is kind of all the above, all the above. And it really depends on which stakeholder within the company. You know, if I'm presenting a recommendation to the CFO, I'm putting together a bunch of financial models, right? Risk assessment, five-year ROIs, you know, um, margin plays and so forth in bed of it. If I'm talking to a product team, it's here are the features that you want to put within your product because this is what we're seeing in your usage data on how users are using your product. So here's what you need to develop. Here are the features that you need to put in first, right? So it all depends on who the, the players are. If it's sales, it's like, here's the discounting strategies that you should do. Here's where you should be focused on inside your region for selling whatever XYZ product it is within Microsoft. So the proposal's dramatically shifting depending upon who who's, who I'm presenting to. Of course, yep. Yeah. So if if you can, can you describe, you know, maybe in a little more detail, what some of the, the maybe not the statistics, but, but what about these models are you looking for or how are you analyzing them? Or, you know, if it's too complicated to go through that in this podcast, then that's fine. But I, I'd love to dig into that just a little bit more if you're able to do so. Yeah, I mean, like take, for instance, you know, we brought up this example. If, if Microsoft was saying to themselves, okay, do we want, do we need to put a new cloud data center for Microsoft Azure, right? Do we want to build it? Cause let's say that there's, you know, $400 million left inside the budget for that quarter on infrastructural build. Um, I'm looking at the GDP of each one of those nations. I'm looking at technology uptick, meaning what's the adoption of technology within those, within those spaces. Yep. I'm looking at um, demographics, like you know, the models are showing me like how many middle-aged males are there versus children and so forth, right? Like I, I'm looking at all of those variables or my data scientists are looking at all of those. And I'm looking at each one of those aspects of what we've deemed as a team to be what we call decision point factors that, you know, and there's five or six of them in any kind of analysis that I'm doing. And basically I'm structuring that saying, here's why I recommend that I'm making this up because I can't tell you where, but here's why I'm making up or why I'm recommending Malaysia. But I've already narrowed down that the next, next data center based upon the worldwide trends and where I think that Microsoft hasn't penetrated inside a market well enough based upon the growth in GDP and demographics of a nation. I'll narrow, my team will narrow that down into three areas that that's kind of the finalists. And then I'll look through that and basically do a final assessment and say, yes, I agree with those three regions that should be the final contestants, if you will. And then I'll give my recommendation saying it should be Malaysia for X, Y, Z reasons. Now I can't, 
go into all the specifics on that because that's proprietary information. But that's that that's basically what I do is sure. I'm the final I, I'm kind of that I'm not the final decision maker, but I'm the next final decision maker that says, here's the final recommendation that we give you. Now, they may choose something else that's completely out of my hands and they have chose something else for something that they may know or another aspect that, you know, we wow. weren't purview to. But Okay. So do you, do you deal a lot with budgets? Um, Are you, you know, do you spend a lot of time looking at at dollars and cents or is it mostly just on the data side of things that you're focused? Um, Actually, no, I, this is where it's weird. My my career probably 12 years ago really veered away from finance, if you will. Um, Basically what I build, the only thing I need, Michael, is give me the budget that I have. Right. So, okay. yeah. so, so Amy Hood from Microsoft will say, okay, Jeremy team for FY 22 or for fiscal year 22 spend in Azure or in Windows or in Xbox, you have X dollars, call it $2 billion, $3 billion for that, that fiscal year. And then we plug and play, we put that inside our models and we know that that's the allotment. And then we, for the next nine months, we're giving recommendations on what to do with those dollars. So the only thing that I need to know from finance is where the budget is at at any given time. So what's the total budget and then what's the budget run rate or what do I still have to play with? And I usually get an updated number like every month, right? Because sometimes, you know, the run rate is running hot, so I have less money. And so the models need to know that to kick out new recommendations or there's an excess of money, right? So the models automatically become more aggressive with, what Microsoft can do from yeah. expenditure. So, so yeah. ultimately, you know, the, these decisions bounce back and forth between you and your team, and then you ultimately make a recommendation that goes up. And then I'm sure, you know, a decision is made and it bounces back. And then that decision probably employs a few hundred people for a few months to, to create that new cloud or that new software. Is that, is that accurate? Is that, is that how it works? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft has roughly about 160,000 employees right now worldwide. Um, I, at times, um, my investment will employ additional resource um, of hundreds of people, like what you said. Like if, if, if we're saying we need a new data, data center in Malaysia, right, for say, or New Zealand, wherever that might be, right, Michael, like that, that will employ hundreds, if not thousands of individuals that are building that, that data center that are putting cooling systems that are putting, you know, they're building a data center and all of the infrastructure needed. Like our recommendation and the final decision made kicks that process off, right? Um, And then in other times we give recommendations and all it is is tells them where to focus with the resources that they already have, right? Okay, yeah, that's more along the lines of what I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, you've got all these data engineers, software engineers, and, right. and you know, your decisions will ultimately affect hundreds of those employees and how they use their times and what projects they're working on. So you're you're just way up there in in the chain of command and, you know, your decisions affect, you know, hundreds if not thousands of employees on a regular basis based on what your, you know, recommendations and ultimately the the determinations are. So Yeah, that, it definitely can. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty cool. That, that's really yeah, neat. Definitely. Yeah. It's kind of scary you know, at the same time. Um, sometimes I lose a lot of sleep wondering, you know, what are the decision and the recommendations that I gave were right. Cause some of those, some of those decisions sometimes are um, headcount um, reductions. 
Um, and so, you know, it, it basically causes a layoff or it can cause a repositioning of resources to a different region. Um, so, you know, it, it used to bother me a lot more than it does now. I guess I'm just kind of more along, <laughs> along for the ride on cruise control with what I do. But yeah, I mean, it, it goes the other way, right? That's um, very impactful. And we take that extremely serious when we, when we give um, recommendations that cause um, layoffs or reduction in expenditures. So, yeah. Yeah I, yeah. I definitely believe that. Um, so tell me a little bit about, um, your team and maybe the people that work under you or above you or the team that you work with, you know, how many people are you talking to on a day-to-day -day basis and, and how many people report to you? So in total, in total, I have about 115 employees. Um, I have seven managers that report directly to me. Um, that cascade down to to that little over 100 employees that report to me. And, and what are those 100 employees? What are, what are their titles or their functions or roles? So they're a makeup of program management um, that just kind of um, runs the overall programs that we recommend for, from, for, from a recommendation perspective. The vast majority of them are data scientists that are wicked smart, 10 times smarter than I am with PhDs in data science and um, statistical modeling um, or stats. Um, and then I, I do have some QA headcount um, that is doing the QA of the code and the models to make sure that it's passing the sniff tests of, um, you know, development integrity. Um, I, in a, in a small group of my team, I, I call them, you know, my worst enemies is um, they are my compliance and security division that mm -hmm. basically look and ensure that the data that we're collecting and we're um, monitoring on individuals and their usage is in compliance with federal regulations. Um, obviously, this has been a very sensitive subject inside the technology space as far as what tech companies do with personal information and usage data. Um, and we're right in the heart of that, right? Because as that gets collected through Microsoft's platforms, we, our team is at the forefront as far as using that data and coming up with investment or marketing um, strategies, if you will. Um, for for the organization and how to spend. So, um, you know, that's that's a small piece of my team that is really looking at like what kind of information that we're collecting about a person. Um, are we keeping it just purely anonymous from a person level and just looking at the usage wholeheartedly? Sometimes we get dinged and they catch us and that's great and I want them to, but that's that's part of my QA slash security team. So yeah, program management, QA, in the data scientists are slash like regular software developers when we're actually building the software that do these recommendations and data scientists that build these predictive algorithms around what we think is going to happen over the next three or five years. So. Wow. All right. Sounds like you've got quite an organization. You've got quite a system. Um, you know, you, you sound very efficient in, in the work that you do and getting, billions of dollars spent <laughs> regularly um well, and, you know it's yeah. exciting that's exciting yeah it's kind of a vulnerable situation to be in all at the same time because you know um i you know i tell my family i tell those closest to me that um uh, i i see the industry and what i'm doing specifically um michael i won't have a job in 15 years um the machine learning and these predictive algorithms and the data scientists themselves that are building these 
the recommendations that are coming out of these models, right? And these, this code base is getting so intelligent and so refined, Michael, that I'm almost not needed or oh, yeah. I won't be, I probably won't be in 10 years. Like I will be replaced by, you know, somewhat of, somewhat of a machine learning or an algorithm program that basically takes what my team is now producing and does what I do and puts it in executive format. Um, and yeah, so that translation necessarily doesn't really need to exist so much. So, you know, I've heard that, that sort of thing a lot that, you know, some of the greatest people out there and some of the smartest thinkers out there are the ones that think they'll be out of a job in five years because what they create is going to replace them. And yeah. that's absolutely what you're saying right now. And, and I definitely believe that. So are there like four or five or 10 or 300 of, of you at Microsoft or are you in a pretty unique role? You were, you were pretty close. I would say there's about five to seven individuals that kind of do what I do um, in some aspect or the other that have their own divisions and they specialize in different departments within Azure or within Microsoft as a whole. So there's, there's teams that focus that do what I do and my team does for Xbox that do it for windows and office. Um, we're predominantly more in the Azure, the cloud space um, and so forth. But yeah, there's, there's bits and pieces of what my team and I do throughout Microsoft, like, but it's very divisional focused. Um, but the roles are very similar. So, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Well, I feel like I've, I've, I've swallowed a watermelon hole just listening to you talk. And it's a good thing. I've learned a lot. It's a lot of information. Um, and now I want to kind of take a step back. And, sure. you know, you having years of experience, you know, working for, for I guess, 22 years since you graduated college, um, what are some recommendations you would give to the to the listener out there who maybe wants to get into the tech industry and ultimately would like to, you know, climb the ladder, as they say, and, and be what you are someday? Yeah, the number one. So when I speak at universities, when I'm asked to kind of give talks um, to research upcoming graduates, if you will, or if I interview um, MBA candidates or whatever that are coming in with Microsoft with an internship program, I'll, I'll tell them always, um, if you're looking to break inside the tech industry going forward, the best way to do that is go into a field as specialized as possible. Um, you know, when I was going through college in the late 90s, the, the golden rule was go as broad with your degree as you possibly could. So, you know, do, you know, graduate in marketing or in finance or in economics or in business management or in accounting, right? Because it gives you this wide array of careers that you can, you know, do or that you can accomplish for a company. Um, and, and I think that paradigm has really shifted that I've seen in the 22 years that I've, that I've been in either finance or mainly technology is that um, those type of jobs are either taken up and already being taken care of and there's not a lot of turnover in those type of jobs um, or um, they're jobs that to your point will eventually they're eventually becoming automated or redundant or less needed so i always tell them to go into a field like um like data science like programming um development um QA within development um security privacy um, are big areas to go into right now. So I, I, you know, what I tell people that are looking to break into it is 
try to become as narrowly focused and as specialized in what you do as you possibly can. Um, I don't think the broad approach is working so well um, in education and in, and or experience as, as well as it used to within technology. Let, let's put it this way, Michael. If I was if I was applying for a job on my credentials when in 2000, when I was one year out of college into the Microsoft today, there's no. Well, if I got a job, it would be a very entry level job and. um it would be extremely hard to break into the company. Extremely. Yeah, um, that's interesting advice. I haven't heard that one yet. But it does make sense, especially in the tech industry, which is only growing and becoming more and more and more specialized. Um, it makes sense. You know, you've got to pick something yeah. that you know you'll be good at, you know you'll enjoy, and get a job in that space. Uh, would you say that there's a lot of room to to shift around once you kind of break into the industry and get a few oh, of experience? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My, I, one of the hardest things that we have right now within my team, and, and it, I would call them, you know, sister or brother organizations within the company that do similar work, is trying to keep employees at the company. Um, as, as great of a company as Microsoft is, both within compensation and benefits and work-life balance and, and just their overall culture, um, there is a revolving door taking place between Microsoft Amazon, Facebook, Google, Oracle, um, Apple, and it's extremely difficult to keep individuals within those companies or within your company because there's, you know, especially if you're inside those specialized fields in data science, it says, there's data scientists is right in the middle of it, right, Michael? And so it's extremely difficult for me to keep a really well-versed and qualified and experienced data scientist on my team. Um, oh. Yeah, companies, competitive companies are opening up the checkbook and just unreal numbers are being thrown in front of 26-year-olds, um, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, so you know, I, I went to school in Utah, uh, right yeah. when Utah was starting to get real big in the tech industry. And I, I yeah. saw some of my friends and colleagues, you know, with only a year or two of experience and, and getting these, you know, $200,000 offers all of a sudden, yeah. you know, in, yeah. in Utah, that's not in Silicon Valley or, you know, up in, up in Washington where there's a few headquarters. Anyway, yeah. it's, it's very interesting that there's so much growth in that industry that they're able to pay those, those big salaries. And that's, yeah, it's hard. Awesome yeah, it, yeah. yeah, it is. It, it's a great industry to be in and it's extremely competitive. I don't see that changing anytime soon. And the, the tech companies much, you know, I think Utah is a fascinating use case with Silicon Slopes that, um, you know, you look at what a home costed six years ago in Utah County, it's doubled, tripled in that amount of time. Right. Um, oh, yeah. And it's because it's because the salaries and compensation of the tech tech industry has really blossomed within that within that space. So you said that you're going to replace your own job with the AI that you're producing currently, which is, which is super interesting to think about, but where do you see yourself in 10 years or so in your career? Retired. Retired, huh? <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. In 10, yeah. I'll be out in 10 years. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, Microsoft has um, somewhat of a retirement plan, if you will that kicks in if, if you're 55 years old and if you've been with the company for, for 15 years, then there's, there's kind of a, a little bit of retirement um, plan that's available to you, which is kind of unusual for a tech company, but 
Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of what I when I targeted to end my career. So okay, I so do have an end date, right? Yeah, it's March sixth, um, exactly ten years from now, two thousand thirty-one. So okay, interesting. Uh, well, okay, let me change that question a little bit then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in your retirement, I assume you know, based on our conversation, you're not the type of person that just is going to sit for the next forty years of your life. What do you plan to do in retirement? Yeah, I. It's a good question, Michael, and I, I've given this a lot of thought, like whether I want to do something, you know, for my church with my wife, um, like on a mission or whatever that might be, um, or what I want to do from a career perspective. And um, throughout my time in the 22 years, I've never lost complete touch with consulting. Um, so even in my role today with Microsoft, like as long as if as long as I'm not given proprietary information out. Um, there's random consultancy companies that will like, you know, want to talk to me for an hour. So it'll be like a paid hour phone call and they'll ask or pick my brain about certain industry trends or companies or technology and what I think about um, of those technologies before they actually invest in them. And so if there's no conflict of interest there, then I'll do that. And I find that extremely fascinating and, and I like it a lot to be able to just do these random touch points with private equity groups or investment um, individuals back east or in Silicon Valley and give them my thoughts around where I think a company is going or a particular technology. Um, so I, I don't, I would like to stay doing something like that on a fairly part-time basis um, and just consult randomly for companies for, you know, um, a finite amount of time, call it a week or two weeks and helping them out through something. Um, huh. So yeah, I, I, I don't I, I see myself doing something more like that than um, anything on a part time or uh, um, kind of on a routine level, if you will. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jeremy, I really appreciate you spending some time to talk with me. I learned a lot, and I think our listeners will be very impressed by who you are and the experiences that you've had. So, you're a great addition to the podcast, and and thanks for joining me. Well, thanks, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity. It was a pleasure. So. All right. Take care. Okay. Thank thanks. You. Okay. Bye-bye.